Wonderful. So we are jumping back into our series in Colossians after a great sermon by Adam last week. And I really trust that you were encouraged by it, that you were motivated by it, and you were equipped by it um, on, our, on our prayer and fasting. But I just wanted to say this. If you have messed up, if you, you, know, you had that sweet, you had that chocolate, you know, you're fasting sugar, and, and you just couldn't resist, you know, don't, don't throw in the tile. Just, just carry on, just keep going, um, because you will be blessed by it, and I'm really trusting that uh, corporately we will be blessed by it, so, so give it a good go. But if you haven't heard the sermon, please, you can, you can hear it on our podcast channel or our, our YouTube channel, or it's available on our website, but I highly do recommend it. So the question we're asking this morning is, can we truly change? Can you truly experience change or new life? Or specifically related to our Colossians question, is Jesus enough to make us new? I'm not sure if you've heard of the story of the the frog and the scorpion. Uh, A scorpion came up to a frog. I'm not sure if it's a true story. Uh, A scorpion came up to a frog and said, hey, please, um, can I jump on your back and, and catch a ride across the river with you? And... uh the frog replied to the scorpion saying, are you absolutely crazy? I know who you are. Your reputation precedes you. What's to stop you from stinging me halfway across the river? And the scorpion said, oh, come on, frog. Why would I do that? If, if I did that, we would both die. And so the frog thought about this for a moment, then came to the realization, oh, it's, he makes complete sense. It's a logical thought, a logical statement. And so he agreed to take the scorpion across the river. But lo and behold, halfway across the river, the scorpion stung the frog. And in his last gasp of breath, the frog said, Why? Why did you do it, scorpion? And the scorpion replied just before he drowned, Because it's who I am. And now we think, Well, that's just a silly story. Thanks, Jason. I woke up to come hear that story. But think about it. How many times... How many times do we hear of a convicted felon who has been in prison for many, many years, is finally released, only to go back to crime, a life of crime, sometimes even worse? And we think, oh, come on, surely all that time in prison would have, would have changed him. Surely uh, his newfound freedom would have motivated him to be a different person, to change and think about us. I mean, how, how many of us, we have things about us that, that we wish we could just change, that we don't like about ourselves, but we're struggling to get over it. We're struggling to, to get past it. Maybe it's in the area of anxiety, and you, you're saying, I wish I wasn't such an anxious person, but I, I worry about everything. I worry about things that, that don't make sense, but I worry about them. People even come to, to me and say, why are you worrying about that? You shouldn't be worrying about that. And you go, oh, no. Or, or maybe it's, it's, it's in the area of anger, or maybe you have like a, a temper thing, and you think, I wish I wasn't such an angry person. I wish I didn't have such a short fuse, because I can see how it affects my kids. I can see how it affects my, my wife. And, you know, I, I try counting and to one, you know, one to ten, taking deep breaths. Maybe I should try a hundred, but nothing seems to be working. Or maybe it's, it's a fear of some sort. You, you crave being in relationships, but as soon as people draw close to you, You push them away and you go, why? Why am I so, what am I so afraid of? Why do I do that? Or maybe it's in the area of a particular sin. 
a particular sin that keeps tripping you up. You just can't seem to get rid of it. Like the scorpion, it doesn't make sense that you keep doing this, that this is your lifestyle. Or like Paul himself, probably in one of the most relevant portions of Scripture in the Bible, Romans chapter 7, he says, hey, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. And so what do we conclude about ourselves? I mean, we've even come up with statements like, hey, well, leopard can't change its spots. This is who I am. It's just who I am. Well, the answer of the Bible, and the gospel in particular, is that we can definitely change. And it's not, not, not in fact, not just change, but you can be transformed into a new person, or to use, to use biblical language, you can become a new creation. In chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul says that if if you have been born again, in verse 1, he said, if you have been raised with Christ, another way of saying, if you have been born again, he says, you can put off that old you. You can put off that old sinful you with all of its sinful inclinations and all of those fears, all of those insecurities, and you can put on the new you, which he says is created after the image of Jesus. And so what I'm arguing for in the next half of chapter 3 is this, that all Christians... All Christians can experience new life by putting on the new self. And Paul is going to tell us exactly what we are to put on now. The last time we were together and we started chapter 3, he told us to put off the old man. And he, and he told us specifically what this old man was like in terms of all the characteristics of the old man. Now he says this is who we are to replace the old man with. And he tells us specifically the, the character traits of this new person, the new man. So, won't you read with me? Colossians chapter 3 from verse 12. Uh, you can grab a Bible in front of you or you'll jump onto your Bible app or you can follow on screen with me, but I want you to see this for yourself. Here we go. Paul continues his thesis or his argument. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here we go, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So to experience new life in Christ, we must put on four things from this passage. You can see them on the flip side of your Bullets and they go like this. We need to put on the identity of Christ, then we need to put on the character of Christ, put on the word of Christ, and lastly, put on the way of Christ. Just a little disclaimer point number two, we're really going to dive in there a little bit, so we're going to kind of wade around in point two for a little bit longer. So if you're thinking, wow, he's still on point two and we still got two more points to go, don't worry. The, the last two are kind of short and punchy. We will still have our coffee. It'll still be hot. So here we go. To experience our new life in Christ, we must, number one, put on the identity of Christ. Sunrise, identity is everything. 
Because you will always live out what you are identifying with and in. Your identity determines how you see yourself, what you value, and therefore how you ultimately feel about yourself. And the Bible is full of identity talk, but so is the world. The world of marketing and merchandise know this better than most. I mean, take, take the top sports brands, for instance, like Adidas or Reebok or Nike or Nike, whichever translation will... I don't know where you guys fit in that whole thing. Um, they want the world's best sportsmen and women to wear their particular brand so that all those who idolize those sportsmen and women will wear their brand. They literally want you to put on an identity. I have friends back in South Africa who support certain teams uh, who are uh, sponsored by certain uh, of these, these big sports brands. They will not touch any other merchandise unless it's this particular brand. So when they go off to gym or they go off to their particular sport, they put on that particular brand. They're literally putting on an identity. But look at what Paul says here. And look at how he says it too. Verse 12, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The first thing I want us to notice here is that the putting on here doesn't refer to the being chosen or the holy or the beloved part. Putting on refers to what, what comes next. But what Paul is establishing here in this kind of parenthetical thought here is, is our identity. Our identity which has already been established. It's already been done for you. Basically what he's saying to us, you can, you can only put on what I'm about to tell you because you are chosen, because you are holy, because you are loved by God. This is who you are. So the putting on here, I mean in this first point, is for us to realize this. To realize who we are through Jesus and in Jesus. I, I really want this for us. And I don't want the word chosen to be a stumbling block to you. I want it to encourage you. I want you to feel security in it and by it. Because imagine this, imagine this. The creator of the universe has decided to make you and me a sinner full of sexual immorality, impurity, anger, covetousness, and all other kinds of earthly things that he referred to back in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 3. God looks upon you and he still decides to choose us and call you his beloved. He chooses us, but the problem is we're still full of sin. And so Jesus says, it's okay. I've got this. So Jesus comes down and he takes all of that sin upon himself. All of those earthly practices, as Paul said early on in chapter 3, he takes it all upon himself and in return gives us his righteousness, gives us his holiness. And the word holiness literally means to be set apart. Jesus came to set you apart from your old self, set you before God and for God. And God did this for you because you are beloved by him. The word beloved is the verb form of agape love. Agape love is, is God's love for us. It's that benevolent, unconditional love. And it had to be unconditional, right? Because before we were born again, we were the old self, living in our sin. We didn't meet any conditions of God. So Paul is saying, because it's the verb form of agape, saying you are the ongoing object of God's love. 
His love was demonstrated for you in the past on the cross, but we now receive the ongoing effects of that. One scholar put it like this. I didn't get his name. He says this. It speaks of the permanence and the enduring quality of God's love for you, God's steadfast, consistent love for you, in other words. He says his love is not like a geometric sine wave curve, up and down, up and down, but is steady and stable, for we are in Christ Jesus, his beloved son. And he says this, and nothing can remove us from our position. This should be the Christian's shouting ground. I love that he ends it like that. I say, as Christians, we should be the happiest people on the planet because of that, because of what we have been rescued from and rescued to. So I'm just asking in this moment, could you just allow the truth of what Paul is saying here to, to wash over our hearts and our minds? For some of you, the word chosen might be a theological stumbling block for you. And unfortunately, I have three other points to get through. So I can't go into detail with it. And Paul doesn't go into detail with it. But if you, you're most welcome to come speak to me afterwards or send me some, some emails, and I'll, I'll try to answer them. But here's the thing. Don't just simply toss it out because it, it doesn't equate with you. Or you haven't figured it out. It's an amazing doctrine that if you get your heart and your mind around, it brings so much security to your life. But there are certain people sitting here this morning who desperately need to hear this. People who know what it's like not to be chosen. People who know what it's like to be rejected by others, ostracized by others, discarded by other people. And I want you to know, Paul wants you to know, you're chosen. The creator of the universe looked upon you in your sin and said, I pick you. I I pick you. And then Jesus dies on the cross for us so that we might be forgiven and set apart for our heavenly Father. And as that quote says, or like the Bible says, a position where nothing can remove us from. This is who you are. This is who we are. Chosen, set apart by God, for God, because we are much loved by Him. I mean, let's spend the rest of our lives on this dusty planet, renewing our minds and our hearts around this amazing identity. Because you will always live out what you identify in and with. So what we're going to do from now on out is look at the characteristics of this identity. Every identity has corresponding fruit or has corresponding characteristics that go along with it. And now, specifically, we're going to look at what we have to put on, these these characteristics. So, number two, to experience our new life in Christ, we must put on the character of Christ. Another way of saying the character of Christ is the nature of Christ. 
You can have character traits that make up your nature. Your nature is, is your, your overall disposition. You know, we, we say things like, oh, look at, you know, he or she has such a gentle disposition or such a gentle nature or he or she has such a temperamental nature, such an aggressive nature. In other words, uh, they have predominant character traits that make up or contribute to the overall nature or their temperament. And so what we're going to see in the last part of verse 12 here are these character traits that contribute towards this nature of Christ because Jesus himself lived out these character traits. Furthermore, Paul tells us in in verse 10 of chapter 3 that this new self of ours, this new self that we've been given, is being renewed in the image of Jesus. So here's what we're to put on. Look at verse 12 again. He says, put on then, and that little phrase in the Greek has a sense of urgency to it. Paul is saying, don't delay. Don't put off what you should be putting on. And he says, as God's chosen ones, as as holy and beloved, here we go, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Now again, we don't have time to unpack each and every single one of those characteristics, but if we we look at them, what do you notice about them? What do you notice most about that list? We can kind of sum up and say they're selfless traits. They're other people-minded traits. They're not so consumed about self, like like the old sinful self, the old sinful um, you and I, we were consumed with ourselves. And Jesus himself exemplified these traits. I think one of the best ways that he personified them was in Matthew 20, verse 28, when he said, hey, I came to serve and not be served. It's a statement that's always fascinated me. Because if there's anyone who could legitimately demand to be served, it would be the Son of God, right? Because he's God. I'm God, guys. You need to serve me. But yet he says, no. I came to serve you. To serve a sinful world that's turned its back on me by dying on the cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven. And so he personifies compassion. He personifies kindness and meekness and forgiveness. And so we think, okay, so we see them in Jesus and we know that we are to put them on because we're in Christ. But how do these traits, and I mean, let's just seriously talk, how do these traits help us in real life? How do they help us when, when life throws us a curveball? How do they help us when, when someone finds fault with you or you with someone else, when you have an issue with someone or an issue, someone has an issue with you? You know, maybe something's gone down at work. Maybe, you know, you have a colleague and, you know, something went wrong and you had got into a big debate or there's just tension at work. It's unresolved. Or maybe you had a big blowout with your your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad or your brother or whoever it might be. How would you normally respond in those situations? How would you normally react? Look at the rest of verse 13. This is what we're to do. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So Paul gives the solution of forgiveness, which is made possible because you have a new nature that is selfless and other-minded. It's not so consumed with self and your own rights. On top of that, Paul gives us the motivation to forgive. He says, the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must 
Forgive. You know, it's the word must. You must forgive, meaning we really don't have an option. But we can take comfort in the fact that God doesn't command us to do things that he doesn't equip us to do. And so he says, hey, I've given you a new identity. You have a new nature. And you've tasted forgiveness from me. Your heavenly Father has forgiven you. But I know many of you might be sitting there going, Jason, you have no idea. You have no idea what I've been through. You have no idea what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. I know what some of you are going through. And I thought of a lot of you at this particular point in my study and in my prep. And Paul is going to tell us in a second, he's going to tell us the missing ingredient. But before we go there, I just want you to think with me, because I know that this is an emotional thing, and sometimes our, emotional, our emotions can cloud our thinking. But when you are hurt by someone, when you are offended by someone, and we react from our old self, we react with our old self characteristics, like Paul highlighted in verse 8, that the whole anger, wrath, malice, slander thing. And I know you know this, but it'll always end up worse. Because if you sow earthly debased reactions, you will reap earthly debased consequences, and the whole situation continues to spiral. But remember, Paul is reminding us, hey, God forgave you. God has forgiven us. He, he didn't have to. He'd be the only one justified not to because he's holy, he's pure, he's never sinned against anyone. All sin is ultimately against him. But out of his love, out of his agape, benevolent, unconditional love, he forgives us. And out of mercy, Jesus takes all of that sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven. So as insensitive as this might sound initially, you and I, we, we really don't have a leg to stand on to not forgive someone. But that's appealing to our minds, appealing to our intellect. Paul reveals the greatest secret that enables us to forgive. Something that, that binds all of these character traits of Christ. And that is the love of Christ. The love of Christ that caused him to forgive us. Look at uh, verse 14. He says, And above all these, above all of these traits that we've just looked at, that we are to put on, he says, Put on love. Put on agape love. Put on the love by which you are most beloved by, by God himself. He says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that's what we want, right? We want to feel harmony in our lives. How many of us are, are so tired of feeling angry, feeling bitter, feeling despondent because of the unforgiveness? And we, we've forgotten what harmony feels like. He says, put on Christ's love which connects all of Christ's character traits together in perfect harmony in our lives. Warren Wearsby, he says this, when, when love rules in our lives, it unites all of these spiritual virtues so that there is beauty and harmony indicating spiritual maturity, indicating that we're growing up in Christ's likeness, in other words. It says this harmony and maturity keep the life balanced and growing. 
as opposed to not growing by harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. So don't delay in putting on the new self so that we can experience this harmony, so that we can experience this, this spiritual maturity despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in. In the same way, Paul goes on and he says we must put on the peace of Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And so do you see, we were called to have peace. We were called to have peace vertically between us and God, and then horizontally with each other in the body of Christ. And so Paul is saying, if you want that, and we're saying, yes, we want that, then he says, well, let it rule. Let it rule in your hearts, not the anger, not the jealousy, not not the unforgiveness, but let the peace that Jesus so grimly purchased for us on the cross, let it rule in our hearts. And that word rule in the Greek means to umpire, to control like an umpire. You know, all of these uh, sportsmen and women, that they think they're ultimately controlling the game. No, no, it's the umpire. The umpire is the one making sure that all the rules are obeyed. He's the one making all of the tough calls. Like, okay, that was a foul. That was a penalty. You're getting sent off. That's a yellow card. And in the same way, Christ's peace in us determines what is acceptable and unacceptable in our lives. It helps us discern what is God's will and what God's will isn't. Not perfectly. We'll we'll get to that in a second. But when we obey God's will we will experience harmony and and peace. It might be tough in the moment, but ultimately we can walk away from a situation going, that was God's will, and that brings peace. When we disobey His will, sometimes even unintentionally, that peace is disrupted. A mentor of mine once said, he was a big, burly South African guy, very thick South African accent. He said, Jason... If your peace leaves, leave with your peace. I mean, he overshadowed me. I was like, yes, sir, no. But it's, it's always stuck with me. Basically, he's saying, if you find yourself in a situation and you just feel Christ's peace within you disrupted, he's saying, get out of there. Go find your peace again. Or you're making decisions and you know the motive for making that decision is disrupting your peace. Repent. Don't do it. But it's not totally a foolproof bet. Not because it's flawed, but because you and I are flawed. Because here's what we do. We can A, ignore it, or B, we can conjure up our own peace. We can conjure up our own justifications for why we are to disobey it. Remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament who deliberately disobeyed God's will to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. But instead, he fled on a ship in the opposite direction. And the story tells us that he went to sleep. That part of the story is always fascinating. He went to sleep. He could sleep. I mean, God Almighty has just told him so clearly. I mean, I would love to hear God that clearly. God just told him, hey, this is what I have for you. This is my will for you. Go and do this. And Jonah says, "Mm, no thanks. That doesn't agree with my will. That doesn't agree with my theology. The Ninevites, they are our enemies. I'm not going to go tell them to repent. I actually want you to take them out. I'm going to go on holiday. I'm not going to go do that. 
And so like Jonah, we can convince ourselves too. We can convince ourselves otherwise. We can come up with all of these justifications so that we can conjure up a peace in us. Or in his case, fall asleep in the boat. But God will not be mocked by our false peace, by our justifications. Just ask Jonah what happened next. But how amazing is it that God has given us this internal umpire within us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to help us discern God's will in particular situations, resulting in peace if we obey it. And according to the last part of verse 15 there, it will fuel our gratitude. But now, what is the thing What is the thing that's going to strengthen and sharpen Christ's peace within us so that we don't just simply drown it out with our own false peace? Point number three, we are to put on Christ's word. So the means or the tool that is is not only going to sharpen and strengthen Christ's peace within us, but but actually strengthen the new you, our new nature within us is God's word, Christ's word. And so all of these false teachers who were infiltrating the church in Colossus, they were bringing all of their false philosophies, these, these human uh, philosophies and these weird spiritual, mystical theories. But Paul says all of those things, they're just going to build up the old self. They, 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 they have no power in overcoming the old self. But Jesus' word points to Jesus, who we are being conformed into. That's why Paul says here, let, look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice the responsibilities on us again. We, you and I, we must let Christ's word dwell in us. Take up your Bibles. Take up your Bibles. Read, study, pray through scriptures. One of my resolutions for this year is to pray more through scripture. But we've got to let it dwell. To, to dwell means to make home or, or to be at home within us. And he says it's got to dwell there richly. It's got to dwell there abundantly, copiously. Not just theoretically, but practically. Because he goes on and he says this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The way Jesus' word dwells in us richly is when we begin to teach and instruct one another according to it. That doesn't mean every time you want to share God's word, you, know, you have to pull out your little music stand and go, okay, guys, I have something to share with you. No, no. It's like while you're in the coffee shop with your friend and you're giving them counsel or, or you're just giving them some advice, but your advice has been impacted by Christ's word, which dwells within you so richly. Sometimes it comes out as admonishing or rebuking. Now, don't get offended. As, as, as difficult as it is, especially in the moment, don't get offended when your friend rebukes you or calls you up on a particular sin or, or a particular attitude that you might have. Rather, in the moment, realize, hey, the word of Christ is, is dwelling in them richly. And they're just trying to help me get my life in, in alignment with God's will again. They're helping me put off the old me and, and helping me put on the new me, the new self. And so we put on Christ's word not only to help us individually and not only to help us in our relationships, but it must also affect the way we worship, literally the songs we sing. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
He's saying Christ's word must inspire, must impact, shape the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs we're we're singing, causing gratitude to well up in our hearts towards God. Listen, if Jesus is the hero of this book, if Jesus is the central character of this book, then our songs must also have him as the central focus. So just a little practical Slightly on the aside, but when you're listening to Christian music, I just thought of three questions to ask yourself. When we're listening to Christian music, ask, number one, is Jesus the central focus of the song, or is it me? There's a subtle difference. But is the song causing or looking like Jesus is all about me, or is the song causing affections to well up in me for Jesus? Who is really being exalted in this song? Jesus is all for me? Or is it welling up amazing affections in me to exalt in Jesus? Number two, can you hear scripture in the song? Oh, yeah, they're singing Psalm 52. Or is the song being influenced by a scripture? Oh, I can see that Ephesians 1 has influenced the song. Or a particular doctrine has influenced this song. Number three, most importantly, can you hear the gospel? Can you hear the good news about Jesus? I'm not saying that every single song has to be about the blood of Jesus or the cross or something like that. But is it influenced? Is it affected by the gospel? Is the band that you're following, the band that you love to listen to, are they influenced? Are they impacted by the gospel? Because sometimes I listen to some bands, I'm like, I don't know if the gospel is the main thing for them. If we're to worship Jesus, then our songs must put on the word of Christ because his word is all about him and we're being conformed into his image. So therefore, the songs we listen to, literally the songs that we sing can help us not only stir our affections towards Jesus, but literally help us put on Christ, help us put on the new you. Finally, what should all this lead to? What should putting on your identity in Christ, the character of Christ, and the word of Christ, what should it lead to? What should it result in? It should and it must result in a new way of living, a new lifestyle. Or we could say it must result in us putting off the old self with all of its sinful inclinations and worldly ways and putting on a new way. I'm not, I'm not talking about perfection here. I hope that hasn't come across. I'm not like saying, look, you know, the moment you're born again, suddenly you know, everything's perfect and you're living just like Jesus. What we're talking about here is the doctrine of sanctification. Go and look it up. It's an incredible doctrine. The doctrine of sanctification is all about the slow, imperfect growth of ours into Christ-like maturity. But nevertheless, we should be growing. We should be progressing in our faith, which must and should result in a new way of living, a new lifestyle. So final point. Hang in there. Here we go. Point number four. We need to put on Christ's way. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, not just your vocation, whatever you do, when you're at Kirk, Foster's, brunch, on the beach, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Because as the church, we are the representatives of Jesus, and therefore our words and our actions must reflect that. But notice two very important words that kind of jump out at me. 
The words whatever and the word everything. Those are all inclusive words. The implication for us, sunrise, is that we can't compartmentalize our lives anymore. He says we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything you say, everything you do must be done as a representative of Jesus. There's no more, hey, you know, when I'm with these guys, this is how I am. This is what I say. This is what I do. And then, you know, when, when I'm here, it's like Jesus. And then when I'm with my community group, I'm like, I'm reading all the verses. But then when I'm with them, it's something else. We can't do that. Because you have one identity. Your identity is in Christ. And that identity has only one character. It's a one-size-fits-all deal. Wherever I go, whether it's to the gym, to work, to church, brunch, and the beach, this is who I am, and therefore this is what I say, how I say things, this is what I do and how I do things. So that at the end of the day, Jesus is magnified, not me. So, There's absolutely no way I can expect you to remember everything we've covered, not just in this sermon, but in in chapter 3 so far. And it really is an amazing, amazing chapter, and it's just full of life-transforming truth. And so I want you guys to go and study it. I want you to join a a community group just for this week, just so that you can chat a bit more about it. But if there's one thing I hope you're convinced of, and that's this. All Christians can experience new life by putting on the new self, which is the very nature of Jesus himself. And it's a process. It's a process of transformation. You are being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. So, know who you are, sunrise. Know that you are chosen. Know that you are set apart by God, for God, and that you are much loved by him. Allow that to to drop down deep into your, your heart and let it Renew your mind. And then, and then, watch the fruits of that identity begin to transform your life. Watch it begin to transform your marriage, your relationships, at work, wherever you go. For God's glory and your good. Amen. Love to pray for you as the music guys come up. Father, I trust your promise in your word that says that as your word goes forth, that it will accomplish your purposes. And so that's what I'm trusting. I'm trusting that you protected everyone here this morning from. Maybe my own thoughts, that your word went out, and that your word is and will accomplish your purposes, that you are busy transforming us into the image and likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus. But you tell us clearly in Colossians 3 that part of that is our responsibility, that we are to put on these traits. We are to put on this identity, Jesus, that you died for. So help us, Holy Spirit within us, motivate us, help us to put on the new us created after the image of you, Jesus. That we might have that peace, that we might have that harmony, despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.